Will you please make your way with me in your Bibles this morning, once again, to the second chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, where we will be looking together at verses 18 through 22. That's Mark chapter 2, 18 through verse 22, and you can find that passage on page 982 in your pew Bibles. Last week we momentarily left off our study in Mark to be reminded by the Apostle Paul from his letter to the Romans of just how heinous a sin hypocrisy truly is. And I think that unfortunately it's all too often an easy sin for you and I to simply write off. We've all undoubtedly heard or perhaps even said ourselves that we are all hypocrites to one degree or another. And often when we say it, we say it without any apparent concern over that fact. And though I'm not denying that there is truth in a statement like that, I want us to be careful to not simply just dismiss it. Because hypocrisy in the Christian life is a real problem when it reaches the levels that we are considering here this morning. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes was much worse than just occasionally not following through on their word. Their actions were being driven by what they actually believed. Hypocrisy was actually an ideology for them. And what they truly believed was not at all that they were in desperate need of the grace of Almighty God. That they needed His grace even more than they needed the air that they breathed. They did not believe that they desperately needed to be saved from themselves and from their sin. They believed that through hard work, discipline, dedication, a little bit of grit, and perhaps just a smattering of God's blessing, that they were already righteous enough, and that they, at the very least, were certainly more righteous than others. That, in turn, then, is precisely what drove them in their lives. And it produced in them the fruit of such belief, which was self-reliance, self-dependence, and of course, self-righteousness, which produced the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. These men were unloving, they were joyless, restless, impatient, not at all kind, ultimately not at all good, not at all gentle, and only self-controlled in a superficial and merely external way. And that really is at the heart of this conflict that we've been looking at here in Mark's Gospel together. This conflict that existed between Jesus Christ and the scribes and the Pharisees. This conflict that he found himself at odds with them. And this morning we are going to look at the third of those five conflicts that Mark has been placing before us. 
And the last time that we looked at this chapter together, we considered the second of those conflicts. And I'm going to back up even further than that for a moment. The first of those conflicts, you will remember, was that in healing the, par- par- the paralyzed man, the man whose friends had to get him to Jesus. In healing that man, Jesus had, had the audacity in the eyes of the Pharisees and the scribes to have actually pronounced the forgiveness of that man's sin. You remember that. And so hearing it, they thought, how dare he? How dare he stand and forgive this man's sin? Only God could forgive sin. Only God could forgive sin indeed. They had missed what was right in front of their eyes. And in their blindness, in their dedication to empty and vain religion, they were unable to follow the logic of their own conclusions. Only God can forgive sin. They were hypocrites. Then, of course, the second conflict that we looked at arose from the calling of Levi as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Levi was, of course, from that despised, socially unacceptable, even traitorous group of men known as the tax collectors. We spent a lot of time a couple of weeks ago discussing the reason for that hatred. I'm not going to rehash it again all this morning. I trust that you can understand why even the other disciples themselves were probably given much pause by such a call going out to such a man as Levi. And when the Pharisees saw that Jesus was even going so far as to celebrate with Levi and his friends, to dine with the likes of these men, they found themselves once again indignant. And they said, this man is clearly a friend of sinners. Only God can forgive sin. This man is clearly a friend of sinners. And again, I would say a friend of sinners indeed. Again, their own logic failed to connect the dots to the blessing of God's grace that all men so desperately need. They did not pursue the God of Scripture. And beloved, we need to remember that. Theirs was a religion with all of the appearance of power and of course none of the substance behind it. And what developed then was a discussion of two sets of people in the visible church. Two sets of Joneses, if you will. Within the church, there are those who have built a very comfortable life on a beautiful foundation of sand with faith in Jesus Christ as a subtext. That's one group. And then, of course, there are those who have built upon the sure and steadfast foundation of stone, that is, faith in Jesus Christ alone, with the rest of life as a subtext. That's the other group. The first may look good for a while. It may even garner the respect and the admiration of the masses. But when the heat of this life gets turned up to full blast, when the stormy winds of this life begin to blow in earnest, that foundation always fails. And the facade, good looking as it may be, begins to crumble 
and come tumbling down. And beloved, the message is clear. Only one foundation is real. Only one is biblical saving faith. Only one will persevere to the glory of God. The one whom God in His precious providence calls and fills with the gift of faith, faith that clings to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. That's the one. And we learn something about the gospel of the kingdom. God, in His mercy, in His providence, calls, and those who belong to Him, by the grace of God, run to Him. We do not resist His merciful call. Though our flesh indeed rears its ugly head and fills us with doubts and fears and worries and justifications for all manner of sin, God brings us into the comfort of His glorious kingdom where it becomes our highest privilege, even our highest joy to serve. And so we tell everyone we know about the wonder of God's grace and the glory of His kingdom, which is exactly what Levi did. That's why in God's perfect providence that the scribes and the Pharisees have walked upon this scene of Jesus actually enjoying His celebration, His dinner with these known sinners. And the reaction to it here is contrasted with the reaction of Levi and his acquaintances to being in the presence of Jesus. One reacts in disgust and recoils in horror, while the other cannot stop smiling and enjoying every second of being in the Lord's presence. And of course, the takeaway was what? There are two sets of Joneses in the visible church of Jesus Christ. Which one are you? And beloved, I hope that you've had some time over the last couple of weeks for some sober reflection on that question. This is the power of the gospel of the kingdom that Mark is so desperate to get before us. He's so desperate for us to see. He confronts us with this question. Which one are you? Do you ascribe to a confession of faith in theory while living in a way that denies it? Do you hold grudges against those who are just not like you? Do you care more about the look of Christianity than you do its actual hope? Beloved, it is and it should be a very sobering question to ponder and ultimately... It should lead us to recognize any hypocrisy within our own hearts and repent. Running then into the arms of Jesus. Or, it leads us to deny it. Running to assemble our forces, to fortifying our troops and trying in vain to protect what is not essential. All the while getting away from the only thing that truly is. And Mark, in the passage that is before us this morning, brilliantly takes us even deeper yet, unpacking for us simultaneously the joy and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even as he pulls back the curtain on the heinousness 
of hypocrisy. So it's with all of that in mind, I would like you to follow along with me in your Bibles this morning as I read from the holy, inerrant, and infallible Word of God, Mark chapter 2, again picking up with verse 18 and reading through 22. Hear now the Word of our Lord. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but you and your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We pray through the power of your spirit that you would give us clarity this morning. I pray that you would remove those things that distract us, that you would allow for us to give our full undivided attention to the glory and the truth of your word so that hearing it, we might be transformed by it for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, in this passage that is before us this morning, perhaps a very well-known passage, or at least a very familiar passage to us, Mark is pointing us to the answer to a very pointed question which came up regarding the behavior and the practices Of Jesus and his disciples. And in answering that question, Jesus gives to us not only a direct answer, but he does so through what I would refer to as three really very quick parables. Pastor David Strain of First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, calls them parables of the wedding feast, the parable of the tailor's shop, and the parable of the vintner's cellar. And as I said, I think that Jesus really answers their question directly in the first example, the example of the wedding feast. I would tell you in the examples of the tailor's shop and the vintner's cellar, not only is the first answer reinforced, but I think that we learn something of the gospel of the kingdom here that is essential for you and I as believers to know. So let's begin by looking at the question itself. The question is there for you in verse 18. Jesus is apparently approached and he is asked, Why do the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but you and your disciples do not fast? That's the question. It's a simple enough question. Everyone is apparently fasting. Why are you and your people not fasting? However, I think we need to know a few things here before we can carefully consider this response. 
Tradition tells us that the Pharisees and their followers actually fasted twice per week at minimum. It's believed by most biblical scholars to have been every Monday and every Thursday of every week, minimum, two times a week. It's also probable that John and his disciples followed a pattern that was at least similar to that. It was what was known according to the traditions that had been handed down over time. Twice per week at minimum. And it's important for us to note also when fasting was called for explicitly in the Levitical law if we're fully to grasp what's going on here. I would love to ask this question and have you throw back answers. I I won't do that this morning. I had to do it on my family this week (laughs) to see whether they knew. But how often does the Levitical law explicitly call for God's people to fast? It was once per year, explicitly, on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, they were to fast and to promote sorrow over the sin of the people of God. And the Pharisees had done what they so often did. They added to the letter of the law, having never fully grasped the spirit driving it. And so, one day per year, through their traditionalism, through their rigid dedication to be more holy, more righteous than everyone else, became over time to be at minimum at least twice per week for all of the holies. That's what the serious ones did. The religious ones, the ones that you know really cared about spiritual things. They fasted. Here is this so-called rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, and they find him, of course, not fasting, (laughs) not even struggling with himself at all, not quick to put on a pious-looking mask. No, he's feasting and celebrating and enjoying himself along with his disciples and these wretched, sinful men, the tax collectors. That's what this question arises out. Now, before we dig into his answer to that question, let me just say that Jesus is not opposed to fasting. We've already seen Jesus himself fast in this very book that we're studying. He fasted when he went to the wilderness. He's not opposed to fasting. He is opposed to hypocrisy masquerading as piety. I'll say it again. Jesus is adamantly opposed to hypocrisy masquerading as piety, masquerading as holiness. He's opposed to role-playing the spiritual life. He gives us more detail in the Sermon on the Mount regarding what it is he's opposed to when it comes to masquerades pretending to be spirituality. He has something to say about the way we pray. Right? He has something to say about the way we give alms. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, Jesus says this, Moreover, when you fast, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. 
Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head with oil. Wash your face. So that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. You know, I read this week that the Pharisees would do all that they could to overplay the somberness and the suffering involved in their fasting. And they would use a paste-like substance to actually whiten the appearance of their faces to make them appear paler than they were. They wanted to convey the sorrow, the sadness, the struggle, the discipline involved in their fast. And they did it in order to appear pious before men. And Jesus says to them, essentially, you know nothing of real fasting. You know nothing of spiritual things. You are not sorry. You are not dependent. You are not reliant. And you are not at all desperate for relief. And so you know nothing of fasting. You are simply playing a role. You are play acting in order to receive the praises and the attention of men. That is the sum and the substance of your religion. Hypocrisy is an ideology. So stop pretending, Jesus says, stop pretending that what you do is before God, that it is seeking God, or that it is even for God. It is for you and for you alone. That is not fasting. Fasting is coming to God stripped of everything. Coming first and foremost out of a desperate need. Coming to God for answers and for peace that you must have, that you need in the same way that your physical body needs food in order to be sustained. That's fasting. But Jesus says, it's not time for that now. Why? Look at his answer. Consider what he's saying here. Let me ask you something, beloved. Have you ever been to a really, really great wedding reception? Everybody's looking at me. How dare you? They're all great, right? They're all great. I've been to so many of them. I've been to so many of them in 48 years of life. I've been to so many of them in the 12 or 13 years that I've been here as a part of this church. I've conducted a lot of weddings. Been to a lot of receptions. They're all wonderful. They're all celebrations, aren't they? But imagine that one reception that just stands out from the rest. The one where the food was absolutely terrific, second to none. And you're sitting there and you're, you're smelling the food while you await the arrival of the groom and his bride. And the wine is perfect, and the company, the fellowship is perfect, the atmosphere and the ambiance are perfect, everything's perfect. It's a celebration. And then the moment comes, and they arrive. And just to show the groom just how excited, just how grateful you are that he has come with his bride, you get up and you leave. It's ridiculous, right? We would never do that. 
the arrival signals the beginning of the celebration. And that is what Jesus is saying here about the untimeliness of their fasting. How can you fast when everything that you have been waiting for, everything that you have been long anticipating, everything going back to the promise in the garden, to the promise made to Abraham, when everything has finally come, how can you fast? There will be a time for sadness and a time for mourning, but it's not while the groom is here with his bride. In verse 20, Jesus predicts his death. He says to them, the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and they will fast in those days. Sorrow will certainly be present in his followers in those days. He answers the question directly. There's no fasting when Jesus is here. The fasting will come later. He simultaneously points to the unfettered joy of his coming while casting a shadow upon the hypocrisy from which the question arose in the first place. And beloved, we cannot afford to lose sight of that. In all these confrontations that took place between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day, it was hypocrisy that was at the center of it causing and even exacerbating the conflict. And as the pattern continues, the leaders are outraged for having their pretended piety stepped upon, and Jesus was letting them know that the jig was up. He knew their hearts, and he knew that they were not what they were pretending to be. Their efforts, their attention, their strict regiments were all for themselves, all for the praises of fellow broken people and not at all for God. Hypocrisy is at the heart of sin itself. Do you believe that this morning? Listen to me. Hypocrisy will drive you to anything and everything else. It will keep you from celebrating what God has done and what God is doing. It will breed a brand of sour-faced Christianity that is an absolute contradiction in terms, to say the least. In light of God's radical grace in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ, beloved, there is no place in a broken world for a joyless Christianity. Now, you understand, it's not that I'm saying we need to walk around with silly plastic smiles on our faces. I talk about that all the time. We are not called to pretend to be joyful any more than we are called to pretend to be pious. We are to celebrate God's grace and we are to stop thinking that being a recipient of grace, the wonderful grace of Almighty God, is a calling to put on a sour, serious look and to be condescending to everyone around us to think that that is what reflects true religion. True religion is not being caught up with checking everything off your list. True religion is Jesus Christ. It's His grace that is at the center of the Christian life. 
Beloved, do you see it? Hypocrisy places all of your focus on all of the wrong things. And it always leads you back to you. It leads you to the desire to be something you are not. It goes all the way back to the garden. Right? You remember that great lie. Did God really say that great seed planting of doubt? Did God really say what followed that? God knows that when you eat of it, you will be like him. (laughs) You will be like God. And Jesus continues to bring that home here in Mark's gospel account. And beloved, I'm asking you, do you see it? Do you feel the weight of it? The seriousness of it? If perhaps, if, if you do not, perhaps in these next two examples that Jesus gives to bolster this point, to drag everything here into the light of the truth, you will. So Jesus takes us on a little trip to the tailor's shop and to the winemaker's cellar. Look with me at verse 21 and 22. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. New wine must be put into new wineskins. So here Jesus gives to us these two examples in order to reinforce his point about not just the hypocrisy that was so prevalent in these religious leaders and their ilk, but also to make what I would consider to be a very major point about living the gospel. First, he tells us what will happen with the example of the new and the old cloth. And it's pretty straightforward, right? It's not difficult to grasp. If you take a new, an unshrunk piece of new fabric, and you use it to patch a rip or a tear on an old stretched out piece of fabric, this will be the result. The new will eventually shrink. The old, having already been stretched to its limit, will give way, and the rip will become worse than it was before you ever patched it. And it's with the, as it is with the wine as well. If you take an old leather wine skin that has already been stretched to its limit and you put new wine to ferment, ferment in that skin as the gases are released and those old skins are made to stretch in order to compensate for those gases, they will burst. And no one will get to enjoy the wine. Then, of course, Jesus also gives you the solution to the dilemma here. And I want to point out to you first what the solution is not. Jesus does not say that you better just stick with the old. (laughs) That's not the solution. The solution to the fabric problem is not to get all of your patches from old garments. The solution to the wine dilemma is not to keep switching the wine into other old skins until the fermentation process has run its full course. The the solution is not to stick with your traditionalism because you know it works. No, the gospel is more wonderful than that. Look at the solution. The solution, beloved, is that in Jesus Christ... Everything becomes new. Do you understand that? 
Forget the rip and the tear. Here is a brand new pair of pants. Forget the old skins. Here is an endless supply of new ones. In the gospel, everything is made new. And that is a reason to celebrate. Beloved, this is so important. I want you to understand this morning, the gospel is not a mixture of your old life and Jesus. Jesus is not merely a band-aid for your old wounds. He makes you new, brand new. He's not a patch on the fabric of your old life. He is newness and fullness Life itself. Do you understand? Beloved, we must. If not, we will do exactly what the hypocrites do. We will do exactly what the Galatians did. They said, oh yes, Jesus. We do love us some Jesus. It's so good. It just needs a little circumcision to finish it off. And with so-called good intentions, everyone's led away from life towards death. That's what legalism does. It takes your eyes away from the only thing that actually matters. What we need is Jesus, and we need to be made new. We need to be new creations in Him. But what our flesh wants is good old structure. We want rules, we want 12-step programs, we want tangible evidences of our own religiosity. We want it to be measured by people and not by the Word of God. We want to keep what is comfortable, we want to mingle it with the newness of the radical grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, no, they are incompatible. Do you understand? These three parables are parables of incompatibility. That's what this truly is all about. Mix the gospel with anything else and what you get is more trouble. You get a mess. The gospel is the thing you need. And so beloved, I'm asking you this morning, have you been celebrating what is true of you in the gospel of Jesus Christ? True of you because of who you are in union with Jesus Christ by faith. If not, then hypocrisy becomes really, really easy. You can spend your time trying in vain to be comforted through your outrage and through your pleas for pity. You can cling to what is old and familiar and not at all to Jesus and try to justify your rage and your discontentment with everyone and everything else. So let me remind you just briefly what new life in Jesus Christ is all about. Because He made you new, He's given you a new heart. Praise God. He's replaced your heart of stone with a new one, one of flesh, one that lives and thrives by the grace of Almighty God. Because He's made you new, He has fully forgiven all of your sin and removed them from you as far as the east is from the west. 
He has declared you His child, His heir, and He has stated definitively that He is your Father. He has purchased you. And you belong to Him. Because He has made you new, you no longer have anything to fear. He has defeated sin, death, and the devil for you. He's given you the very Spirit of God and He guides you. He directs your steps. He'll move heaven and earth to bring you to redemption because He made you new. He's given you the perfect and spotless righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given you the fruition of the promises. You will be comforted. You will be filled. You will have peace and rest and comfort and joy because he made you new. You are seated with him in heavenly places. You have an advocate with the Father. And beloved, I could go on and on and on because he made you new. I hope you get the point. Let me say it as clear as I can. You do not need a little bit of Jesus and a whole lot of hard work in your life. It's not the answer. You cannot add Jesus to the system of your choice. He will blow it up. It will burst. It will be torn. He is not the gospel and. Beloved, do you see the hope here? Today is the day to give up on hypocrisy as a way of life, to give up on hypocrisy as your ideology, as your religion. Today is the day to stop making the glory of Christianity all about you. Today is the day to leave off all the vain pursuits that have only produced a sour face and a miserable countenance. Today is the day to cast off joyless Christianity forever. Today is the day to stop living to be better in Adam. You've been made perfect in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is the day to run to Jesus and put on a whole new life. To give up on fear and anxiety driving you further inward. To let go of your being so easily offended. Today is the day to stop living as if everyone on this earth is letting you down. Jesus has given to you all that you could ever need and so much more. Let your life be a celebration of the truth. Let your joy shine through, pointing to the hope that truly is within you. Jesus never calls you to fix yourself or to fix me. Or anyone else. Do you believe that this morning? That God is not disappointed with your lack of overall progress. That his grace really and truly is bigger than all of your bad habits and all of your bad attitudes. Beloved, if you want to avoid the pitfall of hypocrisy as a way of life, then run to Jesus and celebrate his grace and stay there. Grace that you, you, not just your neighbor, 
Grace that you, grace that we all so desperately need. Amen? Let's pray.